0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, and welcome to the third anniversary of the Asian Review of Books podcast, where we interview authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. As it's our third anniversary, I'm going to do something a little bit different today and talk about another one of my hobbies, video games. For video game players of, let's call them the elder millennial set and older, There's something special about the final dozen or so years of the 20th century. The Super Nintendo, the Sega Genesis, the NES64, and the Sony PlayStation. It's a period of technical advancement and creative experimentation that led to classics still beloved today. Exploring many of these classics, big and small, Japanese and Western, console and PC, are the entries of the Boss Fight Books series, compiled by writer Gabe Durham. Over the past several years, Gabe has invited his fellow writers to put together short works on the classic games that stand out in the medium's history. As of this interview, the 33 entries in the series span from 1976's Breakout to 2010's Red Dead Redemption. For today's anniversary panel, I invited Gabe, along with three of his fellow writers, Elise Knorr, Sebastian Deakin, and Mike Charlars, to talk about their choice of games, what makes the 1992-2000 period so special, and why, perhaps, Japanese companies feature so prominently in the history of games. So, thanks to all of you for joining our special anniversary episode of the Asian Review of Books podcast, where we talk about uh writers writing in around and about the Asia Pacific region in this case uh video games um we have uh four authors from the boss fight book series launched from launched by Gabe Durham so Gabe i want to start with you uh this series now with over 30 entries um is kind of your your brainchild what prompted you to kind of start this series in the first place
3: so Uh, About 10 years ago, uh, I was looking around for the next big project, uh, both creatively and professionally. And I had done a lot of writing and editing and was just kind of reading widely, mostly for pleasure. And one of the things I was checking out at the time was just like, what are the books being written about video games? And what I noticed like on that library shelf and and from what I was reading was, there's a lot of good stuff about the large history of video games, um, about, you know, the history of Atari, the history of Nintendo, the history of, you know, the entirety of video games up to this point. Um, What there wasn't was a lot of book length, deep dive criticism and history could take the time to just enjoy getting into the complete history of an entire game i'd also been checking out um, a lot of the 33 and the third books at the time that was a huge inspiration and was aware of a number of other series it's like we're getting deep into a whole book about other books we're getting into a whole book about movies and it seemed like video games were the right topic for this kind of thing, including, I mean, in some ways (laughs) more than other art forms, because there's so many things to talk about at once. It really has like all the story and sound and music and uh, of movies. And then you also have the interactivity. You also have the story of your own playthroughs of an individual game. And that's always going to be At least a little different than what somebody else did so as i searched for it at first just to see if uh there were some cool books i could read uh, i was surprised that there were not usually when i have a good idea um it's it's already been shared with a lot of other people (laughs) and the thing exists i just wasn't paying attention to it and in this case uh, it did not exist and uh, i i thought um with, with a with a surge of uh of young man confidence well it could be me. <laughs> so um, that, the, the process at the time was about convincing uh, a, a handful of good writers that um, they should uh, trust me enough to, uh, to write a book for, for a fledgling series. And then to, you know, early on in the process, um, in, in case uh, the world rejected it, to, to show up um very publicly and say hey we want to do this what do you think and so we did that uh through a kickstarter campaign and a lot of people showed up there's a lot of enthusiasm for it so that gave us the uh courage to uh keep going with those five and then six books and then look ahead to to the uh to to the next season and and just kind of keep it going from there um
2: so for the benefit of our audience who maybe aren't as big gamers as all of us on this panel are um i'd like to kind of ask each of you to kind of, kind of go through um the game that you wrote about and kind of what makes it important uh whether for you or for the quote-unquote history of gaming or the series or whatever um so maybe gabe will start with you um you know you write about majora's mask uh the follow-up to ocarina of time probably one of the best games of all time um what was it about this game that makes it so important and kind of why you want to make it the subject of, of one of these books?
3: Sure, I, I think there's a lot of things that are really appealing about it to me. Um, one of them is that that I keep enjoying when it comes up in other people's books is the theme of creativity and constraints. And you see that so intensely in Majora's Mask. Um, this This is a team that was much smaller than the Ocarina team. Um, They had years to create that great game, and they had about one year to create Majora's Mask. And they had a lot of benefits. They had the uh, engine that they had built for Ocarina. They had the assets, um, which they remixed many of them uh, very cleverly. Uh, You'll definitely see kind of palette swap versions of characters from Ocarina showing up, but it actually... Like all those things that could be a liability became a strength because it helped create this sense of mystery and this unnerving unease of haven't I seen you before? And what is this place? You know, Hyrule kind of feels like a friendly, uh, ex- a little bit out of the box fantasy world uh, to have a great time and exploring. And Termina feels a little like something else. it's It's maybe it's because we happen to be hitting them Three days before um, the end of the world, but there's um, a real uh, people are unnerved, people are in denial, people are dealing with uh, death in this very uh, immediate way, and that's <laughs> that's pretty unusual for video games. It's pretty unusual for a Nintendo mainline game um, in a in a series that's uh, really wants to make sure it's not alienating kids. So there's a lot there. And then uh, I also just loved to learn about the way people had been interacting with the game for years, um, kind of coming up with their own interpretation of the game, sometimes going so far as to create their own wild fan theories about, you know, what it all means. And, you know, at I, 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 the, the point of writing the book, I'd been running this press for years and had been sort of <laughs> storing up a lot of my own thoughts about... Uh, all the weird uh, and endearing ways that humans interact with video games specifically, but also just art and uh, how often it says a lot more about us than it says about the thing we're interacting with. So I just uh, it seemed like the perfect portal into that world, too.
2: Um, so, Elise, you know, you you wrote about uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 a game so anticipated, they managed to orient a very bad film around it. The Wizard, <laughs> um, yes. But but your your take on this game is 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 quite personal. You kind of weave in a lot of of your own um, story into into this book, as well as talking about the game's development process. Um, what makes this game so important.
1: Well, like you said, i I pitched the game and I started with with wanting to write about this game because of my personal relationship to it. It's the first video game I ever played. Uh, I played it with my dad growing up before I could even read. He had me on his lap playing Super Mario Brothers Three. and I have such fond memories. He he later, you know, my parents got divorced and he moved away. and so I have very nostalgic emotional memories of of playing with that uh, playing that game with him while he still lived in the house with me. And then I went on and played it with my little brother and with my best friend in college. Um, and so it's just a game that has always personally resonated and that I, that I enjoy playing over and over and over again. You sort of memorize where all the secret spaces are and um, you can, you, you, I don't know, something comforting and, and still very challenging about playing that game. As I started writing the book, um, I, through the research process, realized um, what I would not have known when I was four, which is that, um, first of all, as you mentioned, the game Game was just a truly blockbuster phenomenon in terms of um, sales uh, for the time, but also, like you mentioned, hype. Um, so this game had the first truly massive marketing campaign behind it. The the Wizard, the feature length, uh, very bad film that was um, basically a ninety minute commercial for Nintendo products. You know, there was a TV show, there was a breakfast cereal, there were toys, there were Happy Meal toys, um, and also the development around this time of Nintendo Power magazine. A um, Basically, uh, Nintendo product catalog that kids paid to get, um, so just Nintendo at the height of its powers um, and um, a, a game that everyone played um, at all at once, and that everyone seemed to be talking about on the playground and that, that brought us all together, just a really important moment in gaming history. Um, and then also, you know, at, the more I examined the game and, and heard from game designers and game historians, the more I realized that, yes, I have nostalgia about this game. But also, it it is one of the most beautiful and well-designed games of all time. It's a game that today's designers look to as as inspiration, um, especially for uh, tutorialization, um, pacing, flow state, and so. It's one of Shigeru Miyamoto, um, Nintendo's sort of most famous designer. It's one of his earliest, you know, genius works. Also, the last game that he was really hands-on making before he went on to become more of a manager and even some would say mascot at Nintendo
2: um sebastian you, you wrote about final fantasy 6 um which is uh kind of at the end of a particular like phase i guess in this franchise that's now 16 games it's actually way more than 16 games but <laughs> 16 games log um why write about why write about six what is it about final fantasy 6 that makes it a great topic for for a book
4: well i um in this game focused particularly on the music, which is the aspect of the game that resonated most with me. um, But also I think one of the game's most important and enduring features. Um, For me, when when I think about why this game is so important outside of the music, it's really because it's at this inflection point, both in terms of where the Final Fantasy series was and where it was going, but also, um, it's at this turning point for the way we think about games um, in the in the in the mid '90s, and and the way we talk about games, and the way um, the way games are sort of put together. Um, I mean, I think you know, you look back, um, uh, you look back. N- uh, back at it now and you can see the various ways that it's um referred to and and replicated in games that are coming out even today um i think about octopath traveler 2 final fantasy 6 has um it, it, 14 uh protagonists in it i mean 11 11 real ones and then three sort of bonus protagonists but um that's still a lot of protagonists. Right. And then, you know, you have games coming out like Octopath Traveler, which has eight and which also sort of inhabits that same pixel art space that, you know, like Gabe mentioned was a constraint of the time, but has now become its own aesthetic in its own right. Um, and I think, um, you know, like when it comes to the music specifically, uh, you know, it doesn't get much better than Final Fantasy six. I mean, it's really one of those games that people go back to, <clears throat> and they think about the music and they think about this famous opera scene that's within the game. And, um, you know, like you can see YouTube video after YouTube video of people watching the, op- just watching the opera scene, um, people performing the music, um, performing other music from the game. So it really is sort of like this moment at which we we sort of really started thinking about video game music as a thing that's sort of separable from video games themselves.
2: And then Mike, you know, while we're talking about music and games, um you wrote about Parappa the Rappa on the Sony PlayStation, um, which I will fully admit is the one game on this list that I have not had the pleasure of playing yet. <laughs> um but um but but what is it about this game that, that kind of makes it makes it so important and, and such a good topic. Um, for your book,
5: well, you just said it. Actually, um, you have probably played or experienced Zelda, FF, or Mario. But my experience with Parappa is people are either like, "Oh my God," there's there's dozens of us in terms of recognition, or they'd heard of it. Or I, I, my take on Parappa is that. It is even more influential than you realize, but, and I'm only going to make this pun once, it is a bit of an underdog in terms of the greater story it has in gaming. Um, the the case I set to make out and then was pleasantly surprised actually kind of was true. You know, sometimes where you have an objective, and then it mm-hmm. also actually is true. Um, I really felt that Parappa's DNA traced to everything that would come of uh, either the more performance-based music games that people do know that are household names, your rock bands, your guitar heroes, your DDRs, um, and the quirkier, more story-based music things that um, are very directly inspired by Parappa, but kind of died off. So on a base level, I wanted to make this book to kind of make the case and make it enjoyable for people who haven't played this delightful mid nineties one hour playable anime musical starring a rapping dog but i also knew that it wasn't just influential to the wider gaming industry it was influential to me in terms of what made me i I think if you're going to have a lifelong um relationship with an art form things need to reaffirm that relationship you need to have things that check back in and make you remember it sounds cheesy but it's true this is why i love this It's not it hasn't changed so much that I still don't see myself here. And Parappa was one of those early checkpoints where I was like, oh, I can I could do this forever. I could I could find ways to see myself in my life forever. And um, I've always been interested in what those are for people across every medium. And I wanted to kind of make my case and explain why it was that for me. Mm. Um... And I did it. Successfully. <laughs> no, all the here, books. Here. All all the
2: books are great. I I oh, I oh, greatly yes. enjoyed reading reading all of them. Um I do wanna all of you kind of touched on on points that I wanna drill deeper into. Um but before I do that, um a question kind of kind of for for the panel, anyone kind of jump in here. You know, the, the earliest game we're talking about is Mario Bros. three which is from 1989. 9, the latest in Majora's Mask is from two thousand. Um, you know. Parappa is from 96. Uh, Final Fantasy VI is from 94. Um, Elise, you also read about GoldenEye 007, which is from 97. Um, so we're all looking at games kind of in this, like, basically, like, over the 90s, maybe at a year here or there. Um, and if you talk to a lot of people, when you ask them kind of what games are not just beloved but important, I think a lot of people point to games from this period. Um, and I guess, is it something about this period that makes it so again important in our in our conversation about video games like in terms of design or technology or ideas just what is it about the 90s we're all millennials no, that's, that's, we the
4: that's actually but that's actually a really good point um, you know, the fact that I think this first sort of big generation of gamers is late Gen Xers and and millennials, we sort of hit our adolescence and our, our early adolescence in the um in the in the 90s and the and the early aughts. And so that's when the game was also sort of technologically um developing at this breakneck pace. And so we kind of grew up in pace with um, with these games and we're now looking back on them uh, as adults thinking about why they're so important. And, you know that's as you know like for for people who are writers obviously we're going to return to those things but it's you know like i said the adolescence of games that's also the point at which gaming was really becoming what it is um it was really sort of growing up at that time into a sort of more adult state as we know it today and a lot of the games that you look at today you know, take on themes that are maybe a little more, a bit more adult, or maybe they're the same themes that in the 90s other games were tackling, but in a way that was a lot more constrained by the technology, by the perspective of where we were um, at that time, where developers were as artists, where musicians were in terms of being able to manipulate technology. So that's that's in my opinion, I think that's that's what it is.
1: Uh, I I couldn't agree more with Sebastian about just the timing of when we were coming of age and when games were coming of age. I mean, it always amazes me that this art form isn't even 100 years old and that we're writing about it as it Unfolds, And so obviously today, um, as computing power has has increased at an exponential rate, games can do more, technically speaking. Um, But in the 90s, this was when you saw the emergence of the first computer science degrees. So some of the GoldenEye guys that I talked with, they had grown up during this kind of home coding revolution in England, when people were just learning how to code on their own, you could still do that at the time. But also that, um, you know, people started getting formally trained in computing. And so it's right on the cusp for me of when games were still being made by small teams or even auteurs like Shigeru Miyamoto. Triple A titles, some of the you know the best, most popular games at the time were being made by very small teams of people. Um, and so they still had this human touch. They had this handcrafted quality, the sense of purpose from the artist. And you could kind of see the artist in the work. Um, and that came through in games that are a little bit messy sometimes, but also extremely fun and have just a lot of, a a lot of heart, and a lot of the uh, the designers that I talked to on the Goldeneye team have spoken about how depressing it is actually for them to work to still in the gaming industry. And instead of having this time where they were on a very close knit team of twelve people, they're on a team of hundreds and hundreds of people who they don't even ever get to know, and and it's all just emails, and you know, it's it's less exciting. So, obviously, I'm a huge fan of games today, but I think there's something really special about the '90s
5: fully agree can I tag in to also agree with uh Elise and uh, Sebastian because um I think not only what's amazing about gaming being this young I, no matter where you want to cut it you want to say space war was the first game or tennis for two you know we can debate that all day but this is very much a medium one of the rare mediums where the founding members are still alive mostly inaccessible. I'd say the only other art form that easily comes to mind that can say that is hip hop. This is not me trying to bring everything back to Parappa, I promise. But I think with both of those, when, like like we're saying this, this evolution from uh, childhood to adolescence, it means that legitimately every five years, there was a massive technological leap and not just on the tech side um like was said about uh just you know the, the the mechanics and and the foundation um was changing rapidly it's parappa is very much about that but all of our games that uh are pretty much that way and you can look across everything in the boss fight books canon and there's kind of this idea of like this was the first or the best to do this at the time and that can only happen and, and it's wild that all of those, all of these games, pretty much came out within twenty-five years of each other. Yet, within ten years, you can talk about like, yeah, this is the pinnacle of eight-bit design. To, um, this is basically a uh, a movie with fully voice-acted cutscenes. Like within eight, I, I think between Mario three and Metal Gear Solid, what seven years? And artistically, technologically, you just have these leaps, and the nineties were just kind of the sweet spot for that. Because uh, there's also this plateau after. Once we really kind of hit what 3D engines modeling can do, we don't have leaps in that same way. And I would even say artistically as well, the idea for what a game is, is a lot more understood than the spread that we had um, earlier. And I share that that sense of like, oh, I kind of miss when things were weirder and wilder um, without trying to sound... Uh, one hundred percent, like an old man yelling at a cloud.
2: Um. Well, let's 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 get into kind of this this topic of of design. I want to kind of go back to Elise and Super Mario Brothers three. We talked about kind of the Mario series kind of being a, a a masterclass of design of tutorialization. Um, and kind of like how did that come through kind of in your research and your conversations with with developers working on. Well, on that game and any, and I guess also Carson with, with developers for Goldeneye too. Kind of how how are these design questions kind of coming through as people are making these games?
1: The biggest one um, for both the games that I looked at was just this the constraint of memory and the constraint of how much processing power and and memory these uh, this hardware had, and so Mario was very much um, inspired by a, sort of a, a Japanese aesthetic of miniaturization and a um, a, a feeling of delight in being challenged by making things small and working with limited space to be creative. Um, The idea, and this is true throughout creative writing, programming, and it's a a huge part based on what I've read of, of just kind of. Japanese art is that um, constraint leads to creativity and so designers would get um, and programmers would get really excited when they only had a few (laughs) bites to work with Um, and so you look at like woodblock prints or haiku or just the um, creativity bento boxes the the creativity of living on a very small island um, you know you this, this informs the kind of uh, brilliance of, of the Super Mario series in what they were able to do with, uh, with, it's because of how much limited space they had, that they had such creative decisions. Um, and so that, that continues on, I think as, as long as, um, the hardware was really limited, um, the, the software has to, you know, there's, there's not space to, to use text, to teach the player how to, how to play the game. Um, there's not space for an extra level. That's like the tutorial level. We have to get them on the ground learning how to play the game in level one one Um, so we're going to do that through where we place the pipe where we place the block where we place the bad guy we're going to help them intuitively figure out that they can fly um, if they pick up a leaf (laughs) you know Um, so so there's all these kind of really really creative ways of of guiding the reader rather than telling the reader rather showing us why am i saying readers because i teach too much creative writing showing (laughs) the player how to play um, the game through the game itself
2: um, to kind of shift shift topic, um, Sebastian, you you mentioned the opera scene in in your conversation about Final Fantasy VI, um, and I guess first of all, uh, what is it about this scene in particular? Kind of what happens and what makes it so such a compelling part of that game, and then more broadly, kind of like the you also talk about kind of the influences of um all these different genres on the music of Final Fantasy VI and its composer, Nobuo Uematsu. I remember seeing a, a tweet the other day of someone sharing like a random Kansas song and asking why is this sound like a JRPG battle theme? Because it turns out Prague music was actually a big influence on all these composers. Um but yeah, so kinda of, so kind of like what what is it about, I guess again, this the opera scene specifically um that makes it so important in and so compelling in the game and then kind of maybe branching out from that into kind of other influences on on the music
4: yeah i think um you know i think one of the things about the opera scene is that it's the music is just um it's just tremendous i mean it's in in the context of the game i think um this kind of music comes out of nowhere a little bit it's a little bit um i don't know a little bit there's a, there's a kind of sentiment behind it. I don't want to say sentimentality, but there's a kind of sentiment behind it. That's very, um, uh, ambitious and, and deep in a way that, um, uh, you maybe even hadn't seen in other games, you know, heretofore in 1994. So, um, I think that's one thing that's, that's really, um, that's really special and important about it. And I think one of the reasons that it has such a tremendous impact, um, among people who were playing the game at the time, and, you know, and even on to today is that it's just this it's this moment of art within a medium that we now consider art. And so um, it forces you to listen to music as part of the playing experience, right? Like you're you're always listening to music when you're playing these early games. but now it's now it's part of your job. Um, and so, and that, um, obviously in, in rhythm games that come later, like that's, that's really important. Um, there are, you know, like early, very early, you know, games where that kind of happens, but not, not with the, the kind of the richness, um, that this, that this brings. Um, and I forgot the other half of your question.
2: Oh, just like other influences that kind of come through, whether it's, um, whether it's prog rock or other like just kind of the, the vast array of musical influences that kind of come into the soundtrack as written
4: by, uh, Amatsu. Yeah. Uh, he has, uh, boy, does he have a wacky set of influences? I think, um, Uh, You know, like he lists Tchaikovsky as one of his um, as one of his big influences, which you can hear because the music does have a very classical feel. And there's one part of the music in Final Fantasy VI where he quotes Tchaikovsky um, or paraphrases Tchaikovsky in a very, like, surprising way. Um, And, uh, you know, but he also I think the first he says the first album he ever owned was Honky Chateau by Elton John. So it's like, what's going on here? What's going on here? Prague rock is a huge influence for him as well. And so I remember as I was writing the book, I was I was um on a road trip with my husband, and he was just like he had this playlist of music that his parents liked playing. And the song um by Boston came on. I I for the life of me, I can't remember the name right now, but the song by Boston came on and I started hearing like the organ introduction to this, and I was like, hang on a second. Now nah, I've heard that before push pause on this buddy because we're going to listen to some video game music right now i play it for him and he was like what the fuck and i was like yeah exactly uh and so i mean umatsu really he is really this magpie um when it comes to music both in sort of the way he like listens to it but also he really does sort of like squirrel away these little snippets of things and then just like Plop them in, uh, and he he changes them. He obviously he you know like he writes them uh, to, to sort of fit the situation. But it's very very clear when you hear um, when you hear an influence of his, it's very clear like that. That's that.
2: Um, obviously, continuing on the music topic to we'll talk about Parappa the Rapper, um, you know, I, I I I went back to the games. Use I mean, I've obviously I've heard Kick Punch. It's all in the mind a lot. Um, but I went back to, um, kind of all the songs I got to the song was it stage four? the cooking show yeah. and then the jazz rap starts playing and I'm like, Oh, right. Of course. I forgot how good, how good jazz rap is. It's like an Eric B and Rakim song. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, why is it, I guess, important that kind of rap, rap is about hip hop is about hip hop music, um, in terms of, again, it's importance for, um, for those that played it and kind of in how it the its story about you know the the ordinary tragic plays of those who listened to rap and enjoyed rap, um kind of like why is it why is it important that Prappa the rappa of the rappa is a game
5: about hip hop? That is a very good question because I think it honestly comes down to mechanics. Mm-hmm. um uh, Masai Matsura knew that he wanted to make a game that was kind of like Simon using samples, because the upcoming Sony PlayStation, a thing that did not exist, and no one knew what to put on it, could bring CD quality samples to the forefront in a way that had not been easily done in previous consoles. So that was it. Just how can I make something where I can kind of make a playable drum machine? I want to use some samples. That was it. And from that, everything else came. It did make sense for rap to be the genre that he went with, even though his own musical, uh, he was an accomplished, uh like like rock star level musician in uh Japan with his prog rock band, a lot of prog rock in uh, in Japanese compositions uh, called Size. And um but he had a healthy appreciation for for I I knowing what I know, I'd say there was a lot of 80s hip hop there, um just visuals, the vibe and everything. But it did come from just a basic what would make sense for the game I want to make. I don't think it was I want to make a hip hop game that speaks to the soul of it is I want to make a game that does this hip hop fits. And I think that is to the credit of why Parappa persists, because we have seen games around that time and since where someone tries to make a hip hop game and they are deeply embarrassing. And they make me feel bad unless they are Def Jam Vendetta, which will be my next book, but. Um, announcing it live um but uh i i think that there's this beautiful by stepping outside of the pop culture and especially in the mid-90s idea of what rap what hip-hop was or it wasn't parappa exists outside of that expectation subverts any expectation you had and uh i'm not saying it's timeless that they uh from mechanics to presentation it is very 90s but it certainly doesn't feel weighed down that anyone trying to interpolate what they thought hip hop of that moment would be. Um, so I think it it is important that it is hip hop because I think it took the strongest element of it, which is creative remixing of other elements into something fresh, which is the most hip hop thing you can do.
3: I think we all also feel a uh, 45 minute tangent about prog rock coming on because I, okay. So we all grew up, with video games heavily influenced by this genre, but I, if, I mean, we're in the same age range, we kind of missed the actual genre. And so only now, like coming back to it, um, I recently got an opportunity to see Jethro Tull. And so I was catching up, had never listened to their music. And I was listening to some of their songs. I
0: was like, this is Castlevania. (laughs) It's just, I didn't know. I'm sorry. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. That's yes. guys all, so did, true.
2: Did everyone? Did everyone here see when? Um, what is it? Some random uh storm tracker music from the Weather Channel got posted on Twitter, and everyone's like, "This is Kingdom Hearts music." What is? Why is this <laughs> random storm tracker Yoko, music from two thousand yes. sounds like Yoko Shimamura? Um, but Gabe, I mean, I, I I do kind of the last kind of question on on Civic Game goes to you. Um. So I played through Majora's Mask again, not that long ago. Um, and I remember thinking the time, oh, this game's about climate change. You know, looming wow. looming doom. I mean, it's not about climate change, but but um, but Majora's Mask really lends itself, I think, much more than any other Zelda game to this kind of analysis, to this kind of uh, fan theory, um, which you get into in the book and uh, all these communities trying to figure out what the game quote-unquote means Mm. um and i guess to kind of to kind of close off this part of the conversation kind of like what is it about kind of the the atmosphere of majora's mask that really lends itself to again this kind of analysis this kinds of like fan theorizing about about what it means
3: yeah i mean i think there's a a number of things at work that are there's deliberate ones and not so deliberate you know i mean some of the just more (laughs) context of the time ones is that Mm -hmm. these early 3d games necessarily leave a lot of room for interpretation in terms of just what's happening you know what a character's facial expression means um certain things in the n64 slash ps1 era you know they're they're using such rudimentary polygons that it creates a space for you to project a lot into um but they also did a lot to tighten our own sense of mystery. Um, I talk in the book about that original uh, conversation with the happy mask salesman. And he is such a beguiling character because it always seems as if he's going to turn on you and be the secret villain of the whole game. The way he's acting is so shifty and strange, but he actually turns out, is a good guy. He just wants his mask, mask back and it possibly feels a little bit of responsibility for um all this uh <laughs> apocalypse that's going down because of uh because it was stolen from him and and yet like there's it it, it can be so hard to tell what anybody's motivations are and when you're going around Clocktown, which is, is a great kind of introduction to the world of the game. And because it's the hub city and you're meeting so many of the characters right there, uh, immediately you start to see their frame of mind shifting throughout the three days. So there'll be characters who are totally in denial by day one who are shaking in their boots by day three. And there's you see so many different ways of dealing with tragedy and so many different ways of uh, accepting it or not accepting uh, our own reality. And so to me, like, I think that's one of the biggest <laughs> climate change um, parallels, uh, even as it's hard not to read climate change into any apocalyptic works um, these days, but you get an insight into uh, the fallible human mind, and you and and you also uh, have to pick for yourself um, at least uh, it, in in each cycle of the game. You have to pick which kinds of helping people what are you are going to do, you know? And some of those are awfully heroic and, you know, going and trying to save the world directly. And some of those are just addressing very human needs of people that you care about. And the game to its credit does a great job of not prioritizing one over another and not getting to like, mm-hmm. this is main quest, this is sub quest. It's all just possibilities for you. You know, this awful thing is happening. What do you want to do about it? All right. To kind of
2: close off our our the inner this this panel, you know, one question again, kind of for anyone that wants to take it on. We are the Asian Review of Books, so I am going to ask a question about Asia. Um, you know. Um, all the games we've talked about today, with the exception well, GoldenEye is kind of a mixed case. Um, but they came from a Japanese developer: Nintendo, Square Enix, Sony. Um, and while this isn't always been smooth, I think I know a lot of developers came out and said the term JRPG was something that they were really uncomfortable with for a while. Um, but Japan's, you know, it's a key player in the industry, you know. Um, games from Japan seem to be part of a small subset of media, you know, maybe alongside anime and recently K-pop, that's kind of broken through kind of uh, Western and US hangups about consuming something that's foreign. Um and I want you again, kind of given your given your research and talking with these developers, and importantly localizers, um kind of how you think that that Japanese video games managed to kind of become part of foreign media that 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 americans consume without really thinking about or caring that it is
5: foreign uh could i venture a, a first answer and keep and keep this uh and open it up to my esteemed brilliant writers because for me it was consoles um if you were a console gamer before microsoft made the xbox All In North America, I know it is is actually very different in Europe where there's a bunch of weird things that are kind of PCs and no disrespect to European console gaming, I just don't understand it and it kind of scares me. But if you were a console gamer in North America before the Xbox, it was going to be made in Japan. It was going to have the the first party games, the most acclaimed games were going to be heavily uh, straight up developed in Japan or very, very heavily published and overseen. Um, a good example of that is rare which um uh rare and rare rare uh very much in the UK but still Nintendo is there doing Nintendo things. So I think everything I played as a kid my my first formative experiences were on consoles and it was always coming from the Japanese lens even if it was non-Japanese content. I mean and, and that alone is um iconic. Um compare to digital representations of D&D in uh in Western developers, you get something like Ultima on PC. Um, and in Japan, you get what? You get Dragon Quest, you get Final Fantasy. So same source of inspiration, but just a different cultural lens literally spins off everything that comes afterwards. And I think it, it, the the fingerprints are, you, you can't take them from it. Um, they're so inspirational. Like we said before, things are so early in the game that if you're like i want to make a game where two people punch each other guess what buddy you invented fighting games and everything is either a a riff or a in conversation with that and i think japan being at the the the, the epicenter of that both in the arcade and console scene just makes it um it, it can't really be un on that bell can't be unrung in, in my mind and my, my last statement is going to be th- the idea that i expressed before about it being this unique time where things were early enough that we didn't really have as many rules of what a game is or isn't, I think applies to this idea of, oh, well, is that too Japanese? Is that too Asian for Western audiences? Because, like, I just don't think people were viewing Mario that way. I know that there were absolutely views about that in terms of RPGs, but that was more like, are do Americans read words? Like, I, I think it was more of a concern about that um, versus... Um, the, the, the content, but absolutely a concern now where, you know, will whatever uh, Hatsune Miku game uh, is that marketable enough to, to come over here? Um, do we bring over like half of the, of the like a dragon Yakuza games? Because is there even an audience for that when before um, I think it was way less of a thing. So once again, I, I feel like as gaming starts to settle into in many ways very similar to other ways that we categorize art, you know, you know, uh, international film versus movies. Okay. Uh, okay, like made in California versus the rest of the world, everything else is international, right? Everything else is a foreign film. Mm-hmm. I think as gaming becomes a behemoth uh, entertainment source like that, it starts to take on those hangups of uh, separation division that in some ways I think maybe didn't exist as much back then, but, uh, were pivotal to me for how I, I, when I think of what a game is, it was probably made by, um, a Japanese creative team or was, was something in the mix. Cause I didn't have a PC. But that's just me and everyone else here is brilliant. <laughs> um, um, I think a, a like a, a,
3: weakness of American culture is how trained we are to rely on ourselves to create culture and, you know, Mike mentioned foreign film as a genre and it feels that way to people because it's, it's really like an us and them thing. There is the stuff that we make and then there's everybody else. And part of that is Hollywood because that's just been at, at the, it was at the center of film for a long time and it's still got a big chunk of it. and. But part of it, I think, is a post-World War II deficiency in our own psyche. (laughs) Like, we can't imagine a world without us at the center of it. And yet, these children in the 80s and 90s receive these devices where, like, what is on screen is so rudimentary that you really can't tell where it's coming from culturally you 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 know i mean visually it's not like you could necessarily all the time like tell even like what ethnicity a character is supposed to be and all of that i think nicely trojan horses a multicultural perspective into like all of us who were kids at the time in a way that i think young people now are just naturally better at period like it's it seems ridiculous to a young person that you wouldn't pay attention to k-pop just because it's made by people far away and in a different language so I think we've come a long way and I think maybe like that is sort of accidental and that's commerce and that's uh globalism in a way like that is also scary and, and has has a bad sides to it but I I really love like looking at the story of how far we've come and how our our games and particularly like the the Nintendo games of the console era back then um, have, have had a role in that.
1: I want to piggyback off of what Gabe just said because I do see, especially you know, in, the, in those games of the '90s, um, Japanese culture mitigating against all of American culture's worst tendencies, right? So instead of having these scary macho warriors, you know, you had Samus, you know, revealing that she's a woman at the end of the game, or you had, um, you know, a guy in a raccoon suit. I mean, it's just goofy and sweet and, and all that comes from Japanese culture with Tanuki, Mario and, um, you know, Bowser is a Kappa and all these sort of folklore, like this rich folklore and history and, um, the, the proximity of magic to our world and idols and, um, all of that is just infused in the Mario games, um, and then gets hybridized with the fact, right, that he's a Brooklyn Italian plumber, and we kind of get to make fun of Americans a little bit. In Goldeneye, um, the British developers uh, were mandated by Shigeru Miyamoto and Nintendo corporate to tone down the violence and make it less bloody, less glory, less gory, and so you have um, this silliness and this goofiness and sort of softness in Goldeneye that it, uh, the developers. Say is what makes it persist to this day. So that comes out of that post-World War II anti-violent element of Japanese culture and this direct opposition to this macho American gun culture. And I think it's really important to point out that in the 90s, anti-Japanese rhetoric and hate crime, violent hate crimes were through the roof in America, really mirroring what we're going through today post-COVID with anti-Japanese violence. Um, And so when you read these historical documents about where American audiences are trying to figure out what's going on with Nintendo, um, they're using phrases like, Nintendo's taking over our culture sony and you know nintendo and all these japanese cultures are brainwashing our children and i mean the, the books are like how how nintendo is making zombies out of our children and that corresponded with hate crimes and, and i think that's really important to point out
4: and I'll, I'll i'll add um just sort of like i don't know hearkening back to things that a lot a lot of folks have said um, there's like this idea of cultural exchange to me in video games is really interesting because when i think when i think about the music of video games it's very much in uh, uh um an idiom that um you know like americans and europeans understand because a lot of it really comes from the like european like western tradition of music and so there's there's that sort of backward exchange that i think is really interesting and sort of the way the the role that you know like european classical music plays uh, in japanese culture i think i'm sure someone has written like a thesis about it i'm sure you know there's been a lot of there's been a lot of thought put into that but what's what's really interesting to me uh I, I'm, I forget he was talking about um the uh like the Dungeons and Dragons aspect of of video games. Oh, it was Mike. Uh, what's what's really interesting to me is that like the 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 high fantasy game in terms of like if if you're looking at two big role playing game series that came out on consoles, you're looking at Dragon Quest and you're looking at Final Fantasy, and the one that hewed the closest to uh like high fantasy is dragon quest which was a notorious flop in the united states and it like it just never got the foothold here that it got in japan whereas like this other weird like kind of fantasy but also kind of sci-fi but also kind of i don't know like whatever i mean it's like the music you put prog rock and whatever it's just like you just throw in everything in the kitchen sink into final fantasy and that like is a huge success, especially when you hit 1997 with Final Fantasy VII, you know, like one of the biggest, you know, like, like a meteoric success, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, so, so yeah, I just think that idea of cultural exchange
3: is really interesting and something that there's, there's a lot of unpacking to do in video games, especially. Sebastian, I thought of your book where you get into the advertising campaign for Final Fantasy six in America and how, you know, we go from this like beautiful simplicity of what the game actually is and how it was marketed to Japanese people. And then for us, it winds up being this <laughs> like. Are macho. you enough? Yeah, tough enough. <laughs> yeah. Tough enough? Well, doesn't make
2: uh, us look
4: great. It's wild. Yeah.
2: All right. I think with that, um, Thank you for listening to our anniversary panel uh, with some of the authors of the Boss Fight book series, Gabe Durham, Elise Noor, Sebastian Deakin, and Mike Scholars. One final and quick set of questions um, to all of you, and I'll go one by one. Um, just quickly, can you share where people can find your work? And I won't ask the what's the next project question, but I will ask, is there another game that you would like to explore? Um. Well, I I got a I got an internet notification saying my connection dropped out. Oh, and,
3: I think we lost you just a little bit.
2: All right. I'll I'll yeah, just say that lost, whole bit. It,
5: it got really weird.
2: Okay. I'll just say, I'll say that whole thing again. Okay. I'll <laughs> yeah. we'll make a note saying that 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 Airnet cut out there. Um. Okay. But well, three two. So I think with that, uh, I'd like to end our anniversary panel with some of the authors of the Boss Fight book series: Gabe Durham, Elise Nor, Sebastian Deacon, and Mike Scholars. One final and quick set of questions for all of you, um, and I'll go through one by one. Um, could you quickly share where people can find your work? And instead of a "What's the next project?" question, maybe you can share another game that you might want to explore very briefly. Um, maybe we'll go, maybe we'll go
5: the other direction this time. So maybe let's start with Mike. Okay. Um, you can find me. As long as it exists, uh on Twitter at Sholarsenec, S H O L A R S E N I C. All of my work can be found at mike dash And um what do I want you to play next? I or or would... write about next. What well, what 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 would you like to oh, write whoa, about whoa. next? Well, you already said it, but that. well, that's even harder. Uh I I really I think games that live in my head rent-free and refuse to leave, I can't believe I am coming back to uh Def Jam Vendetta. I thought I was better than this, but I think I. the more I think about it, the more I realize that as much as Parappa subverted what we thought hip-hop in games was, Def Jam kind of encapsulated it. And yet it has, I, I'd say a thousand times the audience and nostalgia and intensity that Parappa does. So uh, let's give the people what they want. And I'd get to interview every rapper alive. Sebastian, uh, where can people find your work and uh,
2: what video game would you want to write about next?
4: Uh, you can also, as long as it exists, find me uh, on Twitter at Um That's sensational, but with a B. Um, uh, and just sort of, I don't know, wherever, wherever good books are found, that's my handle. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, take your pick of platforms. You'll find me probably under that name. Um, in terms of what I would love to write about next, uh, I think, I think this opportunity has probably passed me by, but I think folks have asked me this in the past. And I, I think the answer seems the same is I think it would be really interesting to write again, from a music perspective, that's sort of that's what my background is. Um, I would love to write about Super Mario RPG, um, for a number of reasons, both because the music is a little kooky and wacky, um, because it's in that same era as Final Fantasy VI, um, at the end of the Super Nintendo's life cycle. And because I think it's, you know, it'd be interesting to to write about a woman composer, Yokushin Mura, who is um like in this club in the nineties that was really dominated by men. Um, and so I would, I would really, really love to, to bring that to life if I could.
2: Elise, your turn. Um, where can people find your work and what might you want to write about next?
1: Uh, elisenor.com that's alysekno com, And, um, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm going to wait to pitch this to Gabe because he'll kill me if I keep pitching books to him, but I've been thinking a lot about Yoshi's Island, the really weird sequel to Super Mario World where you play as Yoshi shepherding baby Mario across the landscape and like the art is weird and like drawn like a in a child's hand and every time you get hit you know, baby Mario sort of floats away and he's crying and it's it's very triggering to me now as, as a parent to hear that because, you know, like I've got for all of the reasons, um, but I think it would it'd be a way to come full circle with, you know, I wrote Super Mario Brothers three about my dad and I playing the game. And at that time I didn't have kids and now I do. And I'd like to write a kind of love letter to parents. Like it's so hard to find time to play games, um, but when you can play them with your kids, um, it's so fun. Like I'm playing Starfield with my daughter and like while we're shooting the aliens, I'm trying to make it nonviolent. I'm like, okay, so we're shooting them with tired juice because they're all being very cranky and they need to take their naps. And we're gonna make them take their naps with the tired lasers coming out of my, um, my special shooter and you know it's just it's just so much fun so i see that game really differently now as a parent and um i think that it would be yeah just kind of fun to to examine it through this new lens
2: um and gabe you get to close us out uh where can people find your work and um i know it's your book series but but what what game might you want to write about next Hmm.
3: um so First, uh, you can find Boss Fight Books at bossfightbooks.com. Uh, all, all the books by these fine people are available there. Um, We're also on Twitter at Boss Fight Books, and um, currently, um, kind of squatting on every social media platform until uh, the the great reckoning, um, in which maybe another one will reign supreme, and then we'll kind of focus our attention on that. <laughs> For now, it's still mostly Twitter, and. Um, uh, I'm I'm at GabeDurham.com. Uh, I'm at Gabe durham on Twitter. Uh, and I think for today, I'm going to say uh, Slay the Spire. It's a game that I've spent so much time actually playing. Um, I've written two books about games that I, I have I haven't spent just hours upon hours upon hours on. And this is one that I actually have. It's just a game loop that I find so pleasing. It's so well balanced. It's one where you... Can feel like you're steamrolling and then die at any moment. Like it really feels like every decision matters. And I'm just so curious about like what kind of fine tuning process it takes to create that feeling in me.
2: Um, my answer, and I'll keep it brief,
3: would be Yakuza. yes, please. Um, just because that's just just a weird
2: story of you know Japanese open world crime game that is now embraced its in some ways, it's it's embraced its wackiness and its foreignness and found a huge audience outside Japan, which is just a strange um, thing to think about. But that's my answer. Uh, Let's write them together. I'll be the Majima
5: (laughs) to your Kiryu, I promise.
2: Uh... You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, joins for a conversation with Toby Matheson, author of The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shi'ism. But before then, Gabe, Elise, Sebastian, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy anniversary. Yes. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you.
4: It was a pleasure. Thank you.